Good morning and happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you all here this morning. Um, in sermon preparation, there are a couple of weeks that come up throughout the year that stand out in terms of uh, um, just being a little bit more difficult than others. And those are the stories that we know most, right? Easter and Christmas. There's always an unspoken amount of pressure around those times. But Mother's Day is certainly one of those. And I think that's for a, a really expected reason. It's mothers embody at least the ideal mother or this picture of motherhood brings with it this picture of compassion and mercy that is really only ever surpassed by God himself. Mothers are special and, and they mean so much to us. I didn't know that we were going to have a poem read this morning, um, but I've also included a poem in my introduction that I'd like to share with you. Lost memories clutter my mind, though distantly I can see a glimmer in the mirror of my mother. It's only me. How she gathered eggs and her white apron so tenderly or made homemade biscuits and gravy for my brother and me. A grandmother's smile for all the world to see. I'm in her loving arms as she gently cradles me. A special aunt whose gift of praise for only me to see, who sang a sweet lullaby just a little off key. I gather those memories of days I'll never see, but in so many faces who are all a part of me. We touch a child's life for a brief moment, you see. For where to pass it on, a part of you and me. So many special faces, all collective memories. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, and give thanks to our mothers and thee. Mothers pass on a special part of themselves in their children. And I'm not just talking about genetics. I'm not just talking about the similarities that uh, we have with our parents and, and with our grandparents but there's habits that they pass on too, and there's legacies that they pass on in their life and in the example that they give us through their life. And this is something so remarkably incredible. We've been studying over the past six weeks, or this is the sixth week, maybe the fifth week, that we've been looking in the Old Testament and a passage called the Shema. And this instruction is specifically for parents. And where it came about, if you've been here with us, um, you, you remember, uh, if you've been here with us, we've talked about the Shema and the importance that it had on the people. But what's happening really collectively is Moses has been the leader of the nation of Israel. He's led them through trials. He's uh, allowed them to cross the Red Sea, and he's, he's been leading them back to godliness. And as a consequence of idolatry, all of the people who were a part of the deliverance from Egypt have been wandering in the wilderness now. And Moses is about to let loose. He's about to let go of his control on the lives of a nation that he has led similarly to a parent. And in letting them go, he has some departing words, of course, inspired by God, giving us the imperative nature that these, this nation, this people, this, this group of followers of God, that they would be faithful. Because this is the problem that makes its case all throughout the Bible, that God delivers us and then man falls into faithlessness. 
The same pattern repeats itself over and over again. But now, as we look at Deuteronomy, this second giving of the law from Moses to his people is a reminder for them of the law that they've already heard. It's a reminder to them to stay faithful. I want to look at the Shema verses, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I'll be reading the whole thing so that we keep the bigger picture in mind. But this morning, I'm paying special attention to verse 7. And so you might just make note of that as we read. If you would, open your Bible with me this morning. Follow along with me as I read out loud. God's Word says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What do we pass on as a generation? This is really what Moses is writing about. What are you passing on to the generations that come after you? If we look at verse 7, the first thing that stands out is there is this instruction to teach. That we should teach our children, and the Bible says that we should do it diligently, but I want to make note of something that our English translations of the Bible really do a disservice in. That word teach is translated from the Hebrew word shanan, which, interestingly enough, only occurs ten other times in the Old Testament. And every other time that the word shanan shows up, it's not translated teach, because there's another meaning that's actually more important. Every time that it shows up in the Old Testament, that word shanan actually means to sharpen or to wet like you would wet a steel. To sharpen. When it shows up in the Bible and other places, the description that it's using is describing the sharpness of a blade, the process of sharpening a blade, or in fact, even puncturing something. It describes the piercing of the heart that takes place when God's grace pours out on us. And and this is, I think, incredibly important to understand what's being commanded here, the imperative in the text that says that we should teach our children diligently. Because this isn't something that we do through instruction, not necessarily at least. You see, teaching to me brings up these pictures of classrooms and lesson plans or maybe it brings up the picture of learning how to change a spark plug, hands, two hands or four hands um, working together inside of an engine. I have fond memories of learning how to change the oil in my car with my dad. But there's something different about this idea of wetting a blade or sharpening something. If you've ever sharpened a blade, you know that it's not a quick one and done process. Even if you have a whetstone and you take a knife over it, you don't pass it over the whetstone once, but you have to pass it over several times. And, and it gets a little bit even more complicated than that because the angle that you hold the blade is important. You have to hold it at the right angle. 
And because you're passing it over so many times, you have to do this consistently at the right angle because if you alter the angle at all, you've undone the work that you did previously. So there's two components to wetting a blade. Consistency and deliberate action. This is the same picture that we have in the imperative in our text, that we are to teach our children diligently with consistency and with deliberate action. It doesn't happen by accident. And it requires consistency. When we contradict ourselves with our actions, we undo the work that we had laid down previously. If we understand what it means to teach our children diligently, we have to understand that this word, shanan, means that we are sharpening our children to prepare them for something greater. We are preparing them for their place in the world. This is a process of molding and, and, and forming, and it's also a process of strengthening. Preparing our children to be ready for the world that frankly, is against the biblical worldview that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. The Shema teaches us to teach our children diligently, to talk of these commandments that God has given us when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way, and when we lie down and when we rise up. If we understand this literally, it means when we're sitting down, we should be talking about God's commandments. And when we're walking by the way or driving down the street, we should be talking about God's commandments. When we wake up in the morning, we should be talking about God's commandments. When we go to bed at night, we should be talking about God's commandments. But Moses is actually using a literary device here where he uses two opposites or two contrasting parts of the whole to describe the whole thing. So if we understand what's actually being said, it isn't just when we sit, it isn't just when we walk, but it's everything in between. It isn't just when we wake up, and it isn't just when we go to bed, but it's everything in between. I want to look at both of these this morning, and and I'm going to go relatively quickly. But this first one, sitting and standing, these opposites, and this picture of being passive and being active is the picture of when we should be teaching our children diligently. It's something that occurs both actively and passively. For it to be active, that means that we actually talk about God's commandments with our children. That we teach them. That we guide them through discussion as they confront the obstacles of life. Not rescuing rescuing them from their problems, but in fact, guiding them to use God's word as an instruction to be able to navigate real life issues. We have to be careful with that one. To solve our children's problems is actually to do a great disservice to them. We're actually robbing them. We're robbing them of the solutions that they might have come up with on their own. The parent's role is to guide them. Not to leave them without borders, but to give them parameters. And we're fortunate 
That we have God's revealed word that promises that it is sufficient for all things that come up in life. A diligent parent or a diligent teacher or a diligent sharpener of children knows that the parameter that they give their children comes from God's word. Actively, we give our children the parameters of God's word. But passively, we demonstrate for them in our own lives our reliance upon God's word. Passively, we demonstrate for them our reliance on God's word, and children are remarkably... um, What's the word to describe being observant? Is it observant? They're remarkably observant. They pick up on things. And they're watching and they're learning so many things from their parents and from from the community that they're raised in. We don't come into the world knowing how to handle stress. So what they do is they look at their parents and they, they try to figure out how their parents handle stress. So this passive action of teaching is, I don't know, when you are stressed, do you demonstrate for your parents that you turn to God's word the same way that you instruct them to do? Do they hear you and your spouse discussing God's word? Navigating real life issues through God's word. It is a passive action, but it's an important action. When we talk about what I'm doing here today, when we talk about preaching, there's, there's three sides to preparing a message. If you're interested in this, there's the logos of it, there's the ethos of it, and there's the pathos of it. Let me explain what those mean. The logos of it is the actual message that I prepare. That's God's word, and that's the message, and that's, that's how I organize my, my points and my subpoints, and, I, and I, I try to add transitions and illustrations to make things make sense. And I'm not a great preacher, so I know I don't always do a great job at this. But the Logos is very important because without it, there's nothing for people to hear. I don't have to be a great preacher, though, because there's two other sides of it. There's the pathos, and that's my passion. Every once in a while, I hope you see that. Generally, I'm a pretty reserved person, but every once in a while, I I pray that I break in vulnerability before you, that you can see the passion that I have for not just God's word, but for God's people, for God's church. And that's what brings it alive, right? I've passively demonstrated my passion for God's word. But there's that third piece, ethos, and this is more important than any one of the others. Because it doesn't matter what I say, if I leave here on Sunday morning and I act differently, everything that I've said goes out the window. That's our ethos. It speaks louder than the logos. And it's what our children will remember. The problem that Israel is facing is that this new generation that is getting ready to enter into the promised land is finally going out to do all of these things. But remember, this generation was not alive when God parted the Red Sea. This generation wasn't alive. They didn't see the incredible things that God had done in their life. 
And they were being encouraged and instructed to remain faithful. Our passive teaching. It's more important than even our active teaching, and that is no excuse for us to forsake actively teaching our children. But it is an encouragement to make sure that our lives line up with what we are saying. Something that cannot be done by our own volition. But it requires God's grace in our life. The second opposite. Moses says, when you rise up in the morning, you should be speaking of these commandments. When you lie down at night, you should be speaking of these commandments. Again, two opposites to make reference to the whole. From the moment we wake up to the time that we go to bed, we should be talking about God's commandments. Not just in a moralistic perspective, but we should be talking about the promises that God has given us, the things that we are holding on to. And and this is so incredibly important. I've placed a lot of emphasis this morning on parents, but I want you to hear me, church. This is not just for parents. Motherhood is an incredible calling. It's a special calling, and it's something that people get to look forward to. But the reality is God has not called everyone to be a mother. He has called everyone to be a teacher, to be an example. A part of growing up in a Christian family or being a part of a church means that we are a part, all of this together, one member in Christ's body, raising up all of the children of the church. And it may not just be children. There's so many examples of people looking at us and seeing hypocrisy that undermines the message of the gospel that we try to bring to the world. My wife was saved later on in life, and I had the fortune of being a part of that process or being used in that process. And I remember when Michelle first came to me and she said, I want a necklace with a cross on it. And I was actually a little scared because we were pretty rambunctious. And I I asked Michelle, are you sure that's something that you want to do? Because you realize as soon as you put that crucifix on your neck, everyone's going to see you. And they're going to know that you've identified with Christ. They're going to know that this is a part of your life. And they're going to judge everything that you do according to that. Every time you slip up, they're going to say, there goes another Christian. I'm not saying that to discourage us from identifying with Christ. It's an encouragement, rather, that we realize how important it is that we protect our testimonies. That we protect the things and the message that we send out into the world passively. I had a grandpa, and my grandpa doesn't talk a lot. I want to talk about my grandpa this morning just for a little bit, just so you understand what I mean by teaching passively, because it occurred to me earlier this week how much of an impact he had on my life. My grandpa did not talk much. He still does not talk much. He is a man of very few words. 
But I have so many memories of being at my grandma's house and the phone would ring and he would go and answer it and he'd be on the phone for 45 minutes and he'd hang the phone up and he'd come back and he'd eat his dinner, which at this point had become cold. And he'd go into the bathroom and he'd change into his work uniform and he'd go off to work. My grandpa worked so much. He worked at a factory. An incredible amount of his time was spent working. And he would get called in week after week after week to work on machines that were breaking down. And it, it blew my mind always. I thought, how is it possible to work as much as he does? And he never had a bad attitude about it. And this is what really stood out to me as I thought about, you know, Culturally, now we have like the Monday blues whenever you go to work because it's Monday. My grandpa, I don't think he knew anything about that. He woke up with a good attitude about going to work and, and he, I learned so much about work ethic from him. And just the simple fact that if you start your day off with a bad attitude, it's sure to be a bad day. He never taught me that. He never sat down and explained to me how these things happen. I saw it over and over and over again. And now 20 years later, I had the Monday blues and I thought about my grandpa going and putting on his grease-stained blue jeans to go back to work. And I remembered just a simple fact about work ethic. We do the same thing when we teach our children about faith. Church isn't a place that we can run to whenever things get hard. It's here for that. But if our children only see us do that, the only time that they'll think of the church is whenever they're faced with obstacles. The blessings that God has for his people come from obedience. When we talk about blessings in this temporal world, we, it comes from obedience. Do we show our children and demonstrate for them what a life of obedience means? It's incredibly important. I brought up this picture of the Red Sea that, that the generation that were passing from Moses, that they weren't, they, they, they didn't have the opportunity to be there to remember this incredible event. And even if they had, the people that were first faithless to God were the ones that were actually there. But we're 2,000 years after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And we're hanging on to a faith that has been passed on over and over all the way down to us that we might be able to know God. And through His grace, we're able to experience this. But there's something incredibly different, I'm sorry, incredibly dangerous in a faith that is only surface level. Children see us when we let our guard down. They see us whenever we aren't trying to be the picture of the person that we want the world to see us as. They see us for who we really are because they see us at our most vulnerable. 
If you're a parent, that means that they see you at home. They see the decisions that you make and they see the decision-making process. A surface-level faith teaches them that faith is shallow. I want you to think about how dangerous that is. I don't know if I'm stressing this enough, but what happens when a child grows up and you're not there? When you're not there to provide them the guardrails for life? What happens when a child grows up and they they think, they understand, their understanding of faith is that it's surface level, that it's shallow? How are they going to combat the real world? And not just that, how are they going to reconcile the picture of God's undeserved, unmerited love in their life? The responsibility to be an example before men is something given to all Christians. And the weight of it is heavy. Because we are failing people. Continuously fickle in our faith. This isn't something that we're able to overcome on our own. But it comes from the beginning of the Shema. That verse 4. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your... I'm sorry, with all your soul and with all your might. The genuineness... The authenticity that comes from that is the most important thing that we have to offer our children. Not just through careful instruction or through prepared lessons, but it is the most important thing that we have to give them in authenticity. That they would know that the love of God is permeable. That it's overwhelming every component of our life. And the only way through that is through a surrender to God's grace. This morning we have the opportunity to see the picture of understanding this. We get to see what happens when parents demonstrate God's love in their life, when their children at an early age are able to identify not just the complexities of salvation, this idea of atonement and justification and all these different things that we could piece together, but they're able to understand the simplicity That God loved you so much that he created you to begin with. If we went all the way back to Genesis, that's what we would find. God, all-powerful, all-knowing, already knowing that society and that man would fail, loved you enough that he would create you. And to be able to recognize that every one person in this room is a sinner... We've inherited sin from the generations before us, and we will continue to pass it on. And that the problem with sin is that it separates us from God. Separates us from Him. Because He's holy and perfect, and He cannot be around that. But again... He loved us so much that he made it possible to pay 
the penalties of sin, which the Bible says is death, eternal death. He paid that for us on the cross. He died and he was buried. And then not only that, but he overcome the power that death had in this world. In his resurrection, he gave us redemption and the ability to be free from even our own sinful habits. He provides for us grace that is sufficient to overcome the struggles that we have in life. That's the message our children need to hear. Because in doing that, he made a way for everyone who trusted in Christ that they would come to know him. That they would have not death, but that they would have eternal life. That's the gospel message. This morning we're going to have a baptism service of Lydia. Lydia said, I met with her and I visited with her and, and she said that she understood all of these things. And I, here's the question I ask if, you, if, you're, if you're wondering when somebody says they want to be baptized. I say, why in the world would you want to do that? And sometimes you get the answers so that I can be a member of the church, part of the club. But when it's genuine, you get an answer like this. Because I want everyone to know that Jesus died for my sin. We'll sing a song of invitation. And during this time, as we get ready for the baptism, I want to ask you to reflect on the authenticity of your own faith. And maybe even if you've never understood the gospel in this way, I want to plea with you that you wouldn't let time pass before you identify with Christ as your personal Savior. There's only one way into heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ. Would you pray with us before we sing? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and for the, the guidance that it's given us. God, I thank you for um, direction in life. Lord, I pray for everyone that's here this morning as we reflect on the message. I pray that where I failed to preach your message, that you would continue to convict our hearts and continue to pour out your grace to us that we would understand it more and more each day, each hour, and each minute. God, I pray that as we sing, that your message would carry forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you would stand with us as we sing.